And the fact that fossil fuel companies have time and time again made the poorest households pay the most. Fossil fuel extractivism equals conflict, not just in Ukraine, but globally. You're listening to EU Watchdog Radio. Hi, welcome. I'm Joanna Lussa, Comms Officer at Corporate Europe Observatory, or CEO. Europe is facing a crisis of the cost of living and the invasion of Ukraine has exposed its dependency on Russian oil and gas. As the EU continues to import them, it is directly funding Putin's war. And according to Beyond Coal, in March alone, Europe paid 20 billion euros to Russia for fossil fuels. For today's episode, I talked to campaigner and researcher Martha Myers at Friends of the Earth Europe and Pasco Sabido at CEO about why the EU is stuck in the hands of the gas lobby and how is energy poverty connected to the war in Ukraine. But first things first, the EU has been announcing that it would reduce its dependency on Russian gas since the Crimea invasion, but it has only increased for the past 10 years. Okay, so thank you, uh, Pasco, for agreeing to talk to us. You're welcome. Uh, <laughs> Can you tell us what happened? Yeah, so like Crimea was 2014, but already we were hearing about like we're going to reduce our dependence from 2009 when Russia stopped like stopped supplying gas to Ukraine to punish it. Um, and they were like, okay, we need to move away from, from Russian gas. But then, yeah, this huge increase. And yeah, so I mean, I find it madness. So what we've done is we've gone from a situation where we realized we need to reduce dependence on Russian gas and actually we've increased our dependence. And this is because rather than saying the way to reduce dependence on Russian gas is to reduce dependence on all gas spending, you know, we could have had a huge program to roll out renewable electricity, you know, far more windmills, far more solar panels. We could have had a huge energy efficiency program. You know, we could have trained people up, um, got them to insulate homes, created loads of jobs, and no, like we didn't do these things. We didn't have like energy demand reduction. What we did instead, well, what the EU did instead, I shouldn't include myself in it. What our decision makers did was to massively invest political and financial capital in new gas infrastructure. So unfortunately we've seen a huge build out of new pipelines to, to like connect us to like Azerbaijan was one of the ones um, really controversial new pipelines um across europe but then also loads of lng terminals so to import gas from across the world um and that's what's seen like a big increase in the imports of us gas but what this has done is just made us far more vulnerable to global gas markets um, it means we're now at the mercy of lng ships and global gas markets where if suddenly the price is higher in in Asia, or like China is going to buy LNG, then the ships will be diverted and go to China. Mm -hmm. And so for us to get that gas, we need to pay more. So actually, we've made Europe far more vulnerable to a global gas market. And now we're sort of complaining. This was this was not an accident. This was on purpose. And this is because the European Commission and our, and our governments across Europe have been captured by the gas lobby. This is like a classical example of corporate capture. Indeed, but before we continue down this path, let's talk a bit about the crisis European citizens are already facing in terms of living costs, particularly when people have to choose between heating or eating. Martha, exactly what is energy poverty and how is it linked to the war in Ukraine? Thanks, Joanna. Um, so 
Energy poverty is a structural inequality that affects over 50 million Europeans across Europe. So that's one in four households uh, currently struggle to light, heat or cool their homes effectively. Um, this is a political choice. Uh, and it deserves a political response. And the three root causes of energy poverty are linked to inefficient and indecent housing, which is a scandal across Europe, um, uh, broader social injustices and, and uh, factors such as structural racism and ableism, etc. And also the third one, which is directly linked to this war, is our addiction and dependency on fossil fuels and the fact that fossil fuel companies have time and time again made the poorest households pay the most for energy um, and of course the context of the gas crisis this winter then with the added um, financial strain that the, the ukraine conflict has put on these households um Energy poverty has never been so prevalent. It's not just now vulnerable or low income households that are feeling the weight of this, it's everyone. Um, and I think we really have to look at reimagining actually radically what this means for our energy system. There has never been, at least in, in my time working in this field, so many crises coming together to prove that our energy system is failing for people and for planet um, and I think it's really time that we look at how to radically change our energy system to be putting the most vulnerable those who are on the front lines of the climate crisis and on the front lines of um, these financial crises that we're in uh, at the heart of our energy system. And now the war will force the EU to find an energy-focused response. And Pasco, how do you think that will turn out? I mean, before we even got into this war, there was already a cost of living crisis. You know, gas prices were skyrocketing and that has knock-on effects on food prices, on transport prices, on inflation, you know, and wages are stagnating. So we're going to see recession across Europe uh, is the way this is going to go. How is the EU going to respond? Um, it's brought out a whole sort of raft of measures um, and some of them, you know, it's, it has now tried to back a windfall tax on big energy companies. But even there, it's really cautious. You know, we can't distort the market. It has to be really, uh, you know, it has to be appropriate and, and short lived and all these things. And it feels like it's still put in the interest of big energy companies before the interest of the working class, before the interest of people who are in energy poverty. Mm -hmm. But I mean, the, the EU moving away from Russia, like Russian gas, of course, it's an important thing um, because, yeah, as you said, you know, we're funding through energy purchases in the EU. I mean, since the war began, the EU has spent 22 billion euros on Russian fossil fuels. And there's like around 14 billion of that has been on gas. So this is the day that we're recording. I mean, the, the figure will probably be higher now, you know, and that's money that's going to Gazprom and Rosneft, the state-owned companies that's directly funding it. But like moving away from gas, it's only going towards more gas in other places. It's going towards, I mean, ridiculous plans such as like putting money behind hydrogen and methane, but like, yeah, this is not going to be really tackling the cost of energy crisis. Like what's people are going to be out in the streets. How's the EU going to respond to that? 
You've talked in this podcast before to Hans on why hydrogen and methane are not real solutions to our fossil fuel addiction. Can you tell us a bit more about it? Yeah, I mean, so hydrogen has it's been spoken about the last few years, particularly by the gas industry, by European leaders saying, you know, this is going to be the clean fuel of the future, the latest silver bullet being promoted by the gas lobby. But the reality is, in Europe, 97% of the hydrogen we use today is made from gas. So like the idea that we're going to move to hydrogen, which also comes from gas, is just ludicrous. It's going to be hugely expensive. You know, the price of gas is already up. Um, and the EU and, and industry is going to tell us, oh, no, this is going to be green hydrogen, which means it's, uh, it's made from renewable electricity. But the fact is, we're already missing all of our renewable electricity targets in Europe. You know, we're not building enough wind turbines and solar panels. And there is in, in the EU's you know, measures, there's, there's plans to speed that up. But we're already missing our targets. And we need that electricity to decarbonize our economy, to move away from fossil fuels, to stop being dependent on coal and gas power plants. So the idea that we're then going to divert it towards hydrogen is, is yeah, madness. Like even you, talk, you look at Shell and you look at Equinor, big oil and gas companies, and they're also saying, actually, we're still going to need hydrogen that comes from gas because there's, we're not going to have enough electricity. So I think there's, there's some real wishful thinking on behalf of the EU that it can move to hydrogen. And it's, it's also talking about biomethane. Biomethane is basically made from crops. You know, this is the whole debate. Is it like fuel or food? Ukraine and the invasion of Ukraine means there's now a food crisis as well. EU's released a big plan for how to like increase food production. How's that? I don't understand how that fits with having huge biomethane targets, which are supposed to come from from like supposedly leftover crops. But we all see that that's not the reality. So we're going to have a huge competition between food and fuel again. Last time that happened in the early 2000s, we had food price spikes. We had riots. We had revolutions um, because you know, people need to eat. So um, I think moving away from Russian gas and replacing it with hydrogen and biomethane, uh, this is, I mean, this is, feels like it's cooked up by the gas industry, but that's, that's no surprise because they're so involved in the policy making. And I mean, maybe just the last word, as well as biomethane and as well as hydrogen, the EU is talking about diversifying its gas supply. I mean, this is something we've been hearing for, for eight years How, now. Where would they but that. Yeah. Where would it come from? Yeah, this is the thing. Where is it going to come from? So we've already seen the US-EU task force uh, on energy security, which means the EU and EU oil and gas companies are asking the US to massively ramp up production. Uh, we've seen a huge lobbying effort in the US from uh, US oil and gas to undermine regulations, to make permitting for drilling easier, to make pipelined construction easier. But what's that mean? That means more fracking. That means more communities being destroyed, more water being poisoned. I mean, this is a disaster when it comes to environment, when it comes to local communities, indigenous rights, because often it's actually through indigenous land where either pipelines are built or fracking takes place. And let's be honest, it's a disaster for the climate. Like we need to move away from gas full stop, not towards like US gas or what we're seeing now, gas from Qatar. You know, Germany's signed a big deal on, on liquefied natural gas LNG with Qatar. So gas from Qatar, gas from Azerbaijan or gas from Israel. You know, these are other repressive regimes that are they any better than Putin? No, like, so this whole idea, oh, we're being really ethical because we're moving away from Putin's gas, but we're just going getting into bed of a whole other bunch of dictators and, and authoritarian regimes. And in terms of energy production, what alternatives are there, Martha? 
Yeah, I think it's really important in the context of the Ukrainian war to be thinking about how do we radically get off our fossil fuel addiction. Mm -hmm. um, it's been proven time and time again that fossil fuels fund and fuel war. And this is one example of that, of many examples that we have across the world. Um, and, you know, I think this is one example again of, of kind of blood oil and the fact of the intricacies interwovenness of war and injustice and what is funding that. And what is funding that this time is Europe's fossil fuel addiction. So what we really need to do is radically shift power, literally and kind of metaphorically, from the hands of Russian oligarchs, from Putin, from the leaders in Russia, and actually shift this power to the people. So there's many ways of doing this. Um, the energy democracy movement is actually really multifaceted and thriving. And there's lots of groups across Europe working for an energy system which puts people and planet first. Um, some models involve uh, kind of um, reclaiming public ownership of energy systems and ensuring that there's kind of a radical change in infrastructure. Um, other really powerful examples include community energy ownership. So literally giving power to the people so that people become prosumers of energy. So instead of being put into a position of being passive victims to a precarious and dangerous um, gas market, they then become active prosumers of energy. So they are producing clean and affordable energy. Um, and we've seen that those living in community energy ownership projects across Europe are much uh, more protected and much more resilient in the context of this Ukrainian war um, and are much less hit. And regarding the corporate capture of the EU institutions by the gas lobby, how can it be stopped? So that there's the institutional side that they are literally, they've, you know, the European Commission created its own in-house lobby group, a gas lobby group, that it then sort of put at the heart of gas regulations and gas policy making. Um, and of course, the gas lobby is going to tell you you need more gas, so we built more gas. So you need to remove the gas lobby from inside the institutions, um, from like advisory groups, from sort of yeah the, the places that it that it has way like it's deciding what gas use in the future will be and all these sorts of things. Um, you need to remove that. But it's, it goes much deeper than that because it's also, it's a, I think we have to be really realistic and say, this is not just a new phenomenon. This is the result of decades and decades of working hand in hand mm -hmm. uh, with industry. You know, this is a problem that goes beyond fossil fuels. And it's the way the EU thinks government should be done. You know, the European interest is being equated with what's in the interest of industry rather than what's in the interest of the public. And that's a huge problem. But I think what we have here, like we've got a huge opportunity with Ukraine and with, you know, we want to move away from gas, not just Russian gas, but gas in general. And there's a huge opportunity. But instead, what we're seeing is, you know, more pipelines, more imports. And that's because, again, the gas industry is still in this place. So there's a real, I mean, I would say look out for a campaign. Uh, uh, disclosure, I am part of the campaign. So uh, <laughs> it's definitely um, 
I'm not uh, unbiased in this, but there's a brilliant campaign called Fossil Free Politics. And the whole point is actually, how do we get the fossil fuel industry out of politics? Um, and it's based on a great example where the tobacco industry was cut out of politics because tobacco lobbyists were holding back tobacco legislation. We wanted to control tobacco, you know, the World Health Organization. And so what they realized is actually we need the tobacco industry out of the room. And they created a firewall to protect policymaking and public health policy from the tobacco lobby. And we need to do the same thing for the fossil fuel lobby. We need to, we can't have them in the room. And, you know, we have to end that relationship between our decision makers and the fossil fuel lobby uh, and introduce a similar firewall, not just, you know, at the EU level, this needs to be at national level, local level, but also at UN level. So we need to protect policymaking and decision-making to make sure it's in the public interest rather than this sort of narrow interest of the gas industry. We're almost done with today's episode, but we still haven't talked about what the EU has announced. What can you tell us about it, Pascal? Yeah, so the EU's got this, what's called Repower Europe or Repower EU mm -hmm. um, communique that came out that it said, you know, by mid-May or by May, it's going to have like a more fleshed out proposal. But what we're seeing and the impact of, um, you know, of these new pipelines and everything, I mean, First of all, it's really depressing because it's reviving projects that we thought were dead. Like uh, there's a, a pipeline that goes from Portugal to Spain to France called Midcap that was defeated, that was seen as bad for the climate, bad economically. And now both the commission and the gas industry are talking about it again. So a lot of projects that we thought were dead are coming back. Um, and what this means ultimately, building all this new infrastructure, it's not going to be there for five years. It's going to be there for sort of 50, 60 years. That means we're going to be locked in to gas. You know, this infrastructure, uh, the companies behind it are going to want to make profit. That's why they're building it. They're not building it just to save us in the next five years. So we're going to have stranded assets. And either that means, well, who takes a hit? Is it the gas companies who end up paying for it when we decide actually, you know, if we're going to stick to the IPCC reports, are we going to stick to what's coming out of the UNFCCC, so the UN climate talks, which means keeping temperatures below 1.5 degrees, that means the EU needs to be out of gas in the next 10 years. Yeah. So what's that mean for this infrastructure? It means it's stranded. So either that means the gas industry pays, or let's be honest, more likely we pay, taxpayers pay. You know, and where what's going to happen to that? It's probably going to get added onto gas bills. You know, so more people who currently uh, can't afford to heat their homes, more people are not going to be able to afford to heat their homes whilst the gas industry carries on profiting. And let's, you know, let's not kid ourselves. The gas industry has made a killing since the war started. The big oil and gas companies, despite sort of crying about having to pull out of Russia and saying we're doing this for ethical reasons, they're yeah. now exploring everywhere else. You know, their profits have been soaring. So um, it's it's uh, it should be them who is paying rather than rather than the energy poor, rather than the working class. Um, and you know, if we do manage to say no, actually, gas industry, you need to pay. Um, we're going to shut down your pipelines and your LNG terminals because we no longer need them. Then what we see as well is they've got this amazing tool called uh, they've got secret tribunals where they can sue governments. You know what's called a ISDS, mm -hmm. and this is something that's been a real danger across Europe. And you're seeing like the Netherlands, for example, is trying to pull out of coal, and it's being sued by Uniper and RWE, these sort of German utilities, for pulling out of coal. So what happens when we say, okay, no more gas? Expect to see a lot of court cases. Yeah. Uh, expect to see governments being sued by the gas industry. So clearly, who, who's going to pay there? It's going to be it's going to be taxpayers and bill payers. But you know, from all this infrastructure, huge destruction of local communities, we're going to see 
more conflict. Um, already, the the EU sort of EU European oil and gas companies like Shell and Total, uh, uh, as well as Exxon, are sort of trying to drill in Mozambique, where they've caused a huge conflict in Cabo Delgado. Um, expect this to to keep, you know, keep uh, spreading around. This is going to be something that's not going to be limited to Mozambique. You know, fossil fuel extractivism equals conflict. This is fueling conflict, not just in Ukraine, but globally. Yeah, I mean, this is this is what we're seeing. Unfortunately, you know, this has been the history of fossil fuels. Yeah. Look at the Iraq War. You know, where this we don't need. God, there's examples all over the place. We're seeing the same as happening in Argentina, where there's huge amounts of land grabbing where they're trying to frack and you know just expelling the Mapuche people and taking their land and and repressing them. I mean, it's becoming militarized. Even Italy became militarized when they tried to build the the pipeline from Azerbaijan. So you're seeing, you know, the, the huge militarization and conflict coming out of this. And then of course, I mean, the climate's gonna be completely screwed because the gas industry and, and some policymakers talk about gas as like a clean fuel, but it's not like when you drill for gas, when you transport it, um, there's a huge amounts that escape into the atmosphere and gas is made up of methane, which is a really potent greenhouse gas. Uh, so this means when, you know, you take the life cycle of, of all this gas, it can be as bad as coal. So what we're doing now is a, the equivalent of building out loads of coal infrastructure. And everyone, you know, everyone goes, oh, that's really bad for the climate. But people are not saying it about gas. And then, I mean, just maybe a final geopolitical point. This idea that the EU moving away from Russian gas <clears throat> is going to see a reduction in Russian gas or like is, is going to be balanced out elsewhere. It's not. So what we're seeing is, of course, some European companies are now increasing their drilling in North Africa or other places, mm -hmm. but Russian gas is just going to go elsewhere. You know, it's going to go to other markets. We're in a global market. And so all that's happening now, what the EU is doing now, is it's just hugely accelerating a build out of gas that's going to increase global gas consumption, fry the planet, destroy communities, destroy environments. Um, but don't worry, it's going to have a sort of moral high ground to do so. So I think this is, yeah, this is uh, hugely problematic and is not the sort of solution we want to see. In case you're wondering, ISDS is an acronym for Investor State Dispute Settlement. And Martha, just before we go, you've already mentioned a lot of alternatives and possibilities, but how can someone immediately take action? Great question. So there are lots of fantastic energy poverty solidarity groups on the ground across Europe. Um, there's Alliance Against Energy Poverty in Catalonia there, and another one in Italy. And there's Fuel Poverty Action in the UK. And there's groups popping up all over from Lithuania to Portugal. Um, and these are fantastic groups to mobilize and collectivize around the issue of energy justice um, and these groups are fantastic as well because they are often led by people in energy precarity those that are feeling the injustices of our fossil fuel dependency and are demanding action and i think really because energy poverty is a structural problem it is not people's personal burden that they cannot pay their energy bills. It is due to a structural inequality. Mm -hmm. um, and this demands government action and government change. So, um, you know, we have to put pressure on through our solidarity collectives. Um, it's very clear that we have to ensure that we are getting a ban on disconnections 
as soon as possible that we are erasing any debt that is being accumulated um, during this time. And we also need to ensure that there is a windfall tax so that fossil fuel companies are made to um, like pay the price for the uh, prof extortionate profits they are making at the hands of vulnerable and low-income households this winter. I mean, it's an absolute scandal what is happening mm -hmm. um, and who is benefiting and profiting from this crisis. And I think also, you know, we really need to think about in the long term, or actually not in the long term, in the uh, in the kind of next six months, how we're kickstarting widespread subsidized renovations and renewable programs. So how are we getting free of charge renovation programs to the most indecent housing? How are we getting heat pumps and solar panels to those living in the most vulnerable conditions who are on, for instance, pay uh, as you go metered boilers, uh, which are like extremely much more expensive than central heating, for instance. Um, so this is absolutely crucial in the long term. And a lot of these are outlined in our gas crisis response, um, which you can find on the Right to Energy Coalition website, which brings together trade unions, social justice groups, and environmental groups across Europe to tackle energy poverty. And we outline both immediate and medium term measures that are needed. Um, and it's a fantastic piece of work done by those living in energy precarity um, and hearing their demands from across five groups in Europe. And then it's amplifying those demands uh, to EU leaders. And uh, it's got over 40 sign on. So it's actually the biggest civil society response to the gas crisis in Europe. Thank you so much, Pasco and Martha, and also a big thank you to Mark Bariner and Jan Kalewart for technical assistance. We've reached the end of this podcast. Do visit the campaigns righttoenergy.org and fossilfreepolitics.org. If you like this podcast and you value the work of CEO, then please help us to stay independent. Consider making a small donation and sign into our newsletter at corporateeurope.org. And you can also follow us on social media. Till next time, ciao ciao!